So many people have sent me a video link to an interview that Ian Puddick did on his YouTube channel with Paul Page. I watched the interview. I can see why you guys out there are interested in Paul's story. I immediately downloaded for Queen and Currency on my Kindle. I've been absolutely gripped by it. Here's a picture of Paul when he was starting out in the police as a young man. And Paul actually worked his way up, whereby he became a royal protection officer. He was a cop letting the Queen in, Buckingham Palace raising the barrier, and also he was a royal protection officer for Prince Andrew. Now, everybody on the channel who's into the Epstein case has watched the BBC interview with Virginia Roberts. You've watched the Panorama special. You've watched the... BBC interview with Prince Andrew in which he melted down his entire career. Now, Paul was approached by Panorama and it has has not been published. And this is the first time, apart from what he's done with Ian Puddick, it was more of a shorter clip on that channel. This is the, the, lo- the first time now that Paul has spoke at length, got his entire story out there, unedited, all his own words, no agenda, out to the viewers out there. But thank you for coming on, Paul. I'd just like to start then. Um, you said that Panorama contacted you. Yeah. They were going to do something. Could you could you just run down what happened there, please? Yeah. Um, basically, as I said to you before, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason that I started uh, this, this all occurred was because um, about August time, um, I found myself being thrown back into the public light with stories um, about Prince Andrew and quotes that I've, said years ago um and i thought to myself well what i'm going to do is rather than the press keep suddenly putting me in the papers without my knowledge um i'm going to do a twitter account and that's what i did so i started uh um posted information about from my own words about what i knew about prince andrew my thoughts and what was going on um and then shortly after the august sort of newspaper um editions that had come out um i was approached by uh darren mcintyre um from the bbc um and basically he spent a couple of hours with me and um explained that what i'd said 10 years previously about prince andrew allegations i'd made about him um in, re- in relation to the way the way he conducted himself um that they were very interested in interviewing me and putting that on a panorama special um so i considered it and um and then you know, i agreed to do it um and basically the interview took place in london um, about a week, two weeks later. It was a comprehensive interview. I sort of spoke about what I knew about Prince Andrew, not what I suspected or what I guessed, what I actually knew, as in what I'd seen myself and what I'd heard. Um, as 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 you know, obviously, I've, I've been to prison. I've got no agenda. I, I, you know, I served my time and I deserve what I got. But there was no reason for me to come out of prison and start causing issues or telling lies. So everything that I said to Dara for the BBC interview was, was true. Um, the other thing worth noting is that the, the times and the things that I've said and will tell you, I was in company with other police officers. So it's not like I was on my own and it cannot be corroborated. What I'm saying is it, the officers that I was with are too frightened to come forward to corroborate it, but they're certainly not going to come forward and deny it. So I'm quite comfortable if there's anyone, when I say what I say today... I've got an issue with it. Please come forward and we'll discuss it. 
Um, so yeah, I did the interview, a comprehensive interview about what I knew about Prince Andrew. Um, it was all good. Um, at the same time, though, I was contacted by Channel 4 Dispatches, who also wanted me to take part in the documentary for them. Um, but the BBC were insistent that I didn't assist them as they wanted to retain exclusivity on what I'd said. So I agreed. Um, so I refused to, to participate in the Channel 4 documentary, which was about Prince Andrew, which came out just prior to the BBC interview. Um, and then unfortunately, because of uh, a chain of events, which I was told from the uh, Dara, they uncovered some new information in the States. So therefore, my my sort of interview was to be cut, unfortunately, which I was disappointed because um, I think when you look at Prince Andrew, there's not a lot of people out there who are actually telling the public or telling people what he is really like uh, as the person off duty. People see him and other members of the royal family on the telly, waving and smiling. But behind closed doors, certainly from my experience with Prince Andrew, it's a totally different kettle of fish, which is what I explained at the time. And I was completely gripped um, by your interactions with Prince Andrew. Mm. Ghislaine Maxwell was going in there, meeting him. Mm. The way Prince Andrew talked down to his staff and mm. cursed at the staff. Mm. Um, we are going to get to that. I'd like to start out, though, Paul, by asking... What motivated you to join the police? Well, it's actually quite funny because I did. I had a motivation to join the emergency. So I wanted to join the army initially. And when I actually joined the Territorial Army, I served for three years um, in the TA. Um, but I wanted to become a fireman. Um, but unfortunately, London Fire Brigade weren't recruiting. <laughs> so I ended up throwing an application into uh, Essex Police um, and was accepted and ended up becoming a police officer within uh, Essex Police, based at Grays, where I, where I live. And was that your initial position? Were you just um, yeah. a beat cop? Or just what? a beat cop. Just, um, I mean, going back to them days, uh, you know, people, the police services, or we used to call it the police force, and that's the police service, but it's changed a lot. Back back in them days, you, you're a young PC, you're the lowest of the low in the pecking order, that means you're walking the you're walking the beat. You don't get to go in a car for at least six months. Every pile of pardon my French shit that comes through the letterbox, as in like crime complaints that no one else wants to deal with, then you're dealing with it. It's to build your experience up. But yeah, so I, I sort of uh, cut my teeth, as it were, in, in Grace Police Station as a young PC. Yeah. What challenges arose during those early years? I think really and truly because when you're dealing with a county force, because the Met had a bad reputation of. Does it still have a bad... Do all police forces have bad reputation? I don't know. But back in the day, the Met had a bad reputation for violence and, and whatever else. But the Met had 30,000-odd coppers. Essex only had 2,500. Two so the challenges that were different between the Met and Essex were quite simple. If you went to a pub fight, you had to use your your speaking skills, your, your sort of... Uh, persuasive skills rather than your physical skills to break stuff. Sometimes you'd have to get stuck in, but if you turn up to a place where there was a lot of people, you had to do a lot more talking and a lot less, you know, fighting until your backup came. Whereas what I noticed in the Met was, and I'm not slagging off colleagues because it's just, it's just how it was. They were more quick to use physical force because there were so many of them. So the skills that I learned were um, in Essex were invaluable to me because it wasn't all about 
throwing people on the floor and handcuffing. It was about verbal communication and, and, and one-to-one interaction rather than trying to tell someone what they're going to do. Ask them what, what, you know, this is, this is how we're going to do. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah. a difference in how you approach people. Um, cause you, how can I put it? When I went to the Met, uh, so many officers in, in one place, there were officers who would start a fight in an empty room, you know, and those would stick out in Essex because you'd think, hold up, you can't act like that down there because you haven't got enough people to walk around doing stuff like that. But uh, Essex was a, a completely different kettle of fish. Everyone, everyone was tight-knit, you know, all the officers were together. But in the Met, you're just a number, you're not a name, you're just a number, which makes a lot of difference. So you wanted to be a fireman, that's someone who's helping society facing danger you become a policeman also helping society facing danger when it becomes a reality for you when you're confronting those dangers head-on i imagine you got attacked or whatever happened in the early years you got in some situations were you thinking this is definitely the career path i want to be on yeah i mean i when i when i joined the place i was already an england karate international so i'd won british and english titles, so i could look after myself physically um and when I, I remember, I remember when I first was assaulted as a police officer, which changed my perception of how I, how I dealt with people in terms of, um, um, my physical approach, as it were. Um, I was, I was on the beat in Greystown Centre on my own. I was only 20 odd and I've only been in the job, I don't know, six months, whatever it was. And I come across this, this, this gentleman. It was loud. It was abusive to passers-by. He was throwing stuff about. So it was a case of me just going over and needing to talk to him, to quieten him down and send him on his way, which is what I thought was going to happen. But that's not what happened. As I approached him and tried to talk to him, um, he became aggressive and then violent. And a struggle ensued. And because, although I could physically take care of myself, but because I was wearing a police uniform, I was thinking, I'm not in a street fight now. I'm a police officer. I can't give him a right hand. I've got to try and restrain him. And in doing so, his head butted me straight in the mouth. Um, and even then, I was still frightened of try, you know, really defending myself because I felt that I'm going to get myself in trouble. Anyway, ended up to the floor. Other officers came and he was arrested. Um, and all I wanted to do was tell him, quiet and down, pick up the rubbish and send him on his way. Um no more, no less. And then he got charged with assault on police. And we went to Crown Court, and I never forget it. I went, I went there um, to Snaresbrook Crown Court, and, and he got off. I got found not guilty, and that changed my perception of the law. Then that changed how I conducted myself from there on in. Because I thought, you know what, I'm not going to get hit again. I'm not going to give anyone the chance to to hit me uh, in that in that situation. So after that, I became a different sort of police officer. I was still a, uh, how can I put it? I could, I could, I could speak to you, but if I felt there was going to be any form of danger, then I'd make sure that I was the first person to put you, restrain you, ask questions later. Um, cause then I realized the job is actually quite dangerous. But up until that point, when you wear a uniform, you don't really realize that someone could quite easily turn around and smack you in the face or in their days, slap you. And it's a wake up call. Um, respect for the karate I, when I got out of prison I joined the dojo mm. and um, I'd been conditioned in prison whereby mm. you know if anyone says anything to you you've got to react right you've away got, you've got to, yeah, yeah. And, well I was I went with the black belts one night to, they watched some fight in London mm. 
they're walking back over a bridge in Guildford and there's a load of drunks kicking mm. a can and they st- one of them jumped in front of the karate guys like <laughs> the karate guys walk through these guys as if mm. they didn't even exist mm. and I'm thinking right all hell's going to break loose here because in prison someone jumps in front of your face like that yeah. how old were you when you started karate? I was eight Eight. I was like, yeah, I got my black belt when I was 14. Um, wow. Got in the England squad when I was 16. England squad? Yeah, joined the England squad. In fact, a funny story was uh, when I got in the England squad, the England cadets it was initially. It was the first cadet squad. Um, we got invited up to the Houses of Parliament to meet our MPs. This is a true story. And um, so uh, there, we all went up there. There was about 20 of us. And um, we got put in this reception hall and all our MPs came in. I can't remember who I think mine was Harry Cohen at the time. Bless him, he didn't turn up. And uh, anyway, Boris Johnson came in. And this is a true story. He came in and came up to us and was chatting away and um, had this big blonde mop of hair like he does. And uh, so, oh, yeah, karate, are you? Yeah, what are you doing? Where are you going? I said, oh, we're going to the European Karate Championships. So I said, oh, really, really? So oh, what are you doing? So we tell him what we did. Anyway, anyway mustache now. And he gave my friend a little fake fist pump on the old chest and went, oh, make sure you beat the Japanese. So someone said, who the fuck was that? I, thought, I think it was uh, Jeffrey out of Bunk- <laughs> Jeffrey out of Rainbow, wasn't it? Yeah. Make sure you beat the Japanese. Oh, fuck, yeah. Couldn't believe it. So you had a black belt by 14? Yeah. And did you did you get more Dan's? Uh, no, I went to first Dan, um, and then I, I think I got my second Dan later on. But then what happened was, I went by the time I hit 21, and I, I literally was in the England squad. So I was training, I was, I was fighting competitions every week because I won the British and English titles. Um, and then by 21, I was in the police because I joined the Territorial Army when I was 17. Um, and um, I was a lifeguard at a leisure centre as well, like a fitness instructor, as well as at, at the same time. And then I joined the police. And when you join the police, that's it. You're, I was taken away. I had to move. I had to go in digs. Um, so my sort of karate career sort of, leveled out then would being at that level of karate would that be the police look at that as you know we should get this guy in he's got yeah it was the an techniques advantage. to put people down and you know yeah. restrain them and things like that yeah, it was an advantage it was an advantage um because obviously my my i didn't do when i went to police college i ended up being one of the instructors <laughs> so i walked in with a black belt and the instructors only had brown belts so they said oh do you know what you can help train train the so my supposed training was me training the rest of the recruits as it were obviously i learned the police holes but i knew most of them anyway um so yeah we we um because back in them days we used to do milling as well um i don't know if you you know what milling is do you it's you put the gloves on and you just hit each other as hard as you can the sas program they do it in there they don't do that nowadays the recruits they wouldn't do it there but back in them days they used to still do milling and what that does is it, it gets you used to being hit um, which I think, from a self-defence point of view, and my my knowledge, that if you're a police officer, you have a duty of care to yourself first and foremost, then to your family, uh, and then to the public. And what I mean by that is, you should be as fit as you can can be, and you should know how to take care of yourself. Because if you can't, then you're a liability not only to yourself but the people you're working with. So uh, maybe I'm right and wrong in saying this, but when I see officers who are too skinny or too fat, I think you're a liability. Because if you're 20 stone and your your colleague's getting a kicking down the road and you can't run, and if you can run, by the time you get there, you're in no fit state to do anything about it, then there's an issue. 
Um, and I think what's lost in police service today is a lot of discipline when it comes to fitness. And it's not really just police officers' faults. It's the police forces because the budget cuts, they're sporting sort of uh, arms of whatever they're, rugby clubs, football clubs, boxing clubs. They've been gradually reduced. And the time that police officers get, to, or the time they used to get, they don't get now to, to perform. You know, I mean, I was a heavyweight boxing champion in Met. Um, I I used to do the Lafon Cup year in year out, um, and we used to get time to train. Um, but nowadays, you don't you don't get time. It's got to be on your own time. Um, and I think that's very important for a police officer nowadays, if or anyone who wants to join the police, make sure you're fit and you know how to handle yourself. You, you made an interesting uh, comment earlier. You said that you decided to upon a different response when you got in another yeah. situation you wouldn't yeah. get hit. Now, in karate, they teach you some lethal things, you know, snapping necks and uh, bird yeah. big strike in the eyeball. Mm. Um, what level did you decide to take it to do to, to restrain someone? Right, so so my the, that initial contact, although I, although I knew that I could knock this person out in seconds, I could give him a good hiding, I was restrained and was frightened because I was wearing a police uniform. And, and really and truly, I was being attacked. So I should have realised that I can do what I needed to do in order to restrain this person. If it means I've got to punch him on the nose and basically punch him on the nose will make his eyes water and make it hard for him to see, for example. I'm not talking about punching him in the throat because my life wasn't in danger. But I'm talking about doing something that is a measured response in order to retain my safety and, in fact, retain the safety of this person. Um then I have to know, I have to do something. So my my next, obviously I didn't do it at that time because as I said to you, it was, I was only in the job six months. But then I learned the lesson when I went to Snesbrook County Court and this person who was guilty of assault on police walked. Now, a lot of people who watch your program were going to say, good, because you're a copper and that's what happens. Well, no, I'm a human being. I'm a member of the public as well. And I'm, I was there to do a job. I wasn't there to bully anyone. I wasn't there to pick on anyone. He was causing a disturbance and he was intimidating people. And that's why I went to do something about it. So my 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 level, as you want to call it, the next level to me was I will drop you before if you're a threat to me, and it's called a preemptive strike. If you're a threat to me and I look at you and I think you're gonna do something, you're going on the floor first, I'm gonna restrain you, and then we're gonna talk about it. You know, I'm not talking about giving someone a whack because the other thing I find as well with police, and this is why you get a lot of assault on uh, police getting done for assault, because they're not physically capable, right? Um, they don't go gym or whatever. They suddenly decide they're going to get their ass back. They're going to get their batting out or they're going to get their CS bright. And I'm not going against their thought process, but what I'm saying is if they were more physically aware and more physically confident, maybe they wouldn't need to have used those tactical options. Maybe they could have, if they were strong enough to restrain the person, which then obviously uh, lessens the injury of the person they're arresting. It's not always going to be the case. In some cases, you're going to need to hit someone hard around the head with an asp. If your life's in danger or you're in trouble, I'm sorry, whatever people think of the police, you've got to do what you've got to do to be the one walking away. Who wants to end up on a mortuary slab? I've seen it with police officers. I've seen police officers that are too frightened to do what they need to do and they've got hurt badly. I hear you 100%. I mean, if someone was going to attack a police officer, I think that person would be lucky to attack someone like you who was a skilled martial artist and knew how to minimise that situation. Uh, yeah, um, it, it, as I said, and I was I was a uh, self-defence instructor in Essex Police for a while, and then I went. I was one of the top instructors for the Met 
and I was one of the heads of self-defense for the Royal Protection Command, hence why I went to the Royal Protection Command, because they wanted me as one of the instructors. Um, but I've always said, um, you know, the police get a bad reputation for... Listen, I've, I've hit people that I shouldn't have hit. Sex cases and nonsense, I'll be honest with you, I've, I've hit street robbers, I've, I, you know, I've done things that I shouldn't have done. But is it illegal? Is it wrong legally? Yes, but morally, is a different kettle of fish. If you're, if you've, if you've caught, caught someone who's just beating up an old lady and robbed them of her jewellery, I'm not taking any chance with you. I'm going to give you a good idea, and then when I know you can't do anything, but I'm going to handcuff you. It's as simple as that. Um, I'm not going to do that to an innocent person, but I've done it with, I've done it. Uh, and the problem you get is there's a, there's a crossover of, of what's right and what's wrong. Well, we all know what's wrong. But if I put you in a police uniform and I showed you an old lady with her nose broken and a couple of teeth missing, and I showed you a very nasty individual who's got previous for it, and you're now chasing this person, Dan, and he turns around to you and he's not going to come quietly, you've got two choices. You can either walk away with your tail between your legs or deal with the situation. You know, and back in them days, um, there was a lot of disquiet with, amongst the police um, about uh, criminals getting away with too much. And there was. I mean, back in Paul Condon's day, he even said, and you can have a look at this and people can read up on it, that there's a lot of uh, uh, corruption has been caused um, because of the court system and why how they let people off so lightly. And what that did was, the ripple effect was it caused corruption within the police. Um, and, and, and it did back in the day, you know, uh, like I said, bent for the job. The term bent for the job means you're bent in terms of you will you will go to whatever lengths you need to to get a conviction of someone you know as committing continual criminal offences. I've got one more karate question before we go back to your story then, because I've wondered about this. So I've watched a video of the London terrorist yeah. attack. So let's say one of the guys who put that guy down and he had that suicide belt strapped mm. on him, Let's say one of those guys had been a martial artist mm. and he had gone all the way and snapped that guy's neck and killed him. In the eyes of the law, would he be charged with no, something then? No, he'd been fine. He'd been fine. Um, you know, I, when I looked at that, I per, personally, I wondered why they didn't, when they took that knife off him, they didn't put it in him. Put him in, the knife was taken away. I don't know if you saw that. But yeah, no, I saw that, the guy running away ca- That was a clear case of the man, he had already stabbed two people. And obviously, we never know he killed him, um, and he was looking to, to to kill more people. So, if if someone had snapped his neck, then that would have been that would have been fine. That would have been justification in, in self defence. Watching the video, did you wonder if you were the what you would have done? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, if if I could have got to the knife, that the knife that was taken away, I would have, I would have stuck it in him. What else could you do? You know, that that's that would have been a clear case of. Uh, you're you're preserving life, you know. You're there to protect and preserve life, and that would have been one of them cases where it would have been clear that you had to do that. You know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he had that belt on. You could have gone off at any second if it well, was real. Well, I mean, I looked at that and I thought, if you know, when they got hold of him, I was wondering if they were going to throw him over the the bridge. You know, if you've got a suspected uh, vest on, you know, I mean, back in the days we were trained, and I'm going back twenty odd years ago now, when 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 all this sort of suicide vest start coming out, we were secretly trained in the. Lippitz Hill and the firearms courses to uh, two, two officers grab arms and the other one shooting the back of the head. So you'd have three officers, you know, one either in holding the arms out and the other one shooting the, shooting the suspect in the head. You, you're trying to do that. Yeah, you've got to in kill case, them as fast as possible. In case, 
you know, in Buckingham Palace is one of them places, the same as uh, Parliament, where you've got officers on the gate and you could easily get, and it happened in Parliament, you know, why they didn't have armed officers when that um, that poor PC got killed on the gate, um, on that gate. And I'm pretty sure it was to do because the MPs didn't want armed officers on the gates. Um, but they have to remember that is a that is a, a building that is uh, subject to attacks uh, from all kinds of people. You know, we get threat levels um, each week. I think the threat level is assessed to see where it is in response to our, our whatever we're protecting. So it could be Buckingham Palace, it could be Parliament, it could be the same threat level throughout the country. Um, and really and truly, if there was armed officers on that on that post at the time, they could have took that that person out. He wouldn't have even got in the gates, you know, which is a bit annoying for me when I see that that PC uh, as brave as he was, you know, and he and he his life was just wasted, you know. Okay, so um, going back to your early years, then you mentioned that you saw officers who didn't know how to mm. behave in a violent situation get hurt. Yeah. Have you got any stories you can describe yeah. about that? I've got one. We all we all used to have nicknames, and um, I mean, I remember one one fella, bless him. Um, we used to call him Wilf. Uh, the reason we called him Wilf, he was his own young, young, young uh, lad, but he was a neighbourhood beat officer. Um, but he had quite a posh accent, and uh, you know, he was, he, but he was a neighbourhood beat officer. But he loved to spend his time in old people's homes, sitting there having cups of tea and drinking, you know, eating biscuits, um, which is why he got the nickname Wilf because it sounds like an old person, doesn't it? So bless him, Wilf. Wilf used to ride around on a bike through Grace Tent and Centre with his with his trousers. With the with the cycle things on, it didn't look the most macho of officers. Do you know what I mean? He he, he did get the piss ripped out of him. If I'm going to be honest, um, and then one day I got told that I've got to go out with him, and um, I ended up on a bike with. Oh, it looked horrendous, and I ended, he cycled me up to an old paper. So we sat in there for two hours, eating cake and drinking cups of tea. And I said to him when I come out, I said, "Wolf, don't ever do that to me again. I just want to kill myself now, mate." <laughs> so anyway. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't a handy officer. He was one of these officers I'm telling you about. A lovely bloke. He was a good police officer. You don't all have to be. I'm not saying that everyone should be macho and running around it. And I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, you can be a good officer and, and have communication skills and all the rest of it. But sometimes you're going to need a bit of, a, you know, a bit of muscle to you in a situation. And um, on this particular occasion, poor old Wilfie had gone up to Cranberville Street, and there was a group of youths there causing a disturbance. Um, and he'd gone up there on his own, and they basically beat the fuck out of him. Um, and uh, we got by the time we got there, he was, you know, he had a good hiding. And um, and we said to him, he said, he said, but he said all I said to him was, you know, I said, and someone said to him, the reason you've got a kicking is because you spend too much time eating cake and drinking cups of tea. And people, old people's arms. <laughs> and it, obviously, what happened? We we rounded them up, and they they, I mean, back in them days, if you assaulted a police officer. I mean, and this is where you get a lot of people now going, oh, police brutality and all the rest of it. There were, I'm not going to lie. There was brutality that I'd seen in terms of, it, how can I put it? Well, I say brutality. So, for example, I'll give you an example. Um, so, Wilf got beaten up, right? So, what we did was we we rounded up the ones that had done it. And what you do is if you get someone who assaults police, basically it's the uniform they're assaulting. And what you've got to remember, if you're wearing it, you know, if it could be anyone, it could be anyone sitting watching this program now and thinking, oh, listen to what he said. Well, you put the uniform on. Don't sit in an armchair and tell me what you think, unless you've been out there and you've done it. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
and you 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 think to yourself, right, you've got that uniform now. That is that is the only protection you've got that uniform. So if someone touches that uniform, they're touching every other police officer on this manner. So that what I'm saying is, if you let one of them get away with touching it, they're all going to start doing it. So this is back in this is like going back 25 years ago. Now it was a different, you know, the way we think than the police think now. You know, obviously I'm 48 years old now. What happened then is a lot different to my mindset now. But I'm going back. The culture was different, and um, and so we call up reception committee. We've got one on board, uh, sort on place reception. Well, reception committee back at the police station was police officers lined up both sides of the corridor and you come through and you get the fuck kicked out of you <laughs> all the way from one end of the corridor to the other. <laughs> and by the time you got to the other end of the corridor, you're never going to touch a police officer again. And that's what happened. And that's and that back in them days, it didn't happen all the time. It happened for certain issues. Like if you're, um, if you're, uh, like I say, for assault on a police officer, you have to remember that to police officers, that's the holy grail. Because if you let one get away with it, then word goes around the manor, oh, I'll smack such and such. Well, no, that's not how it does. And I imagine some criminals would prefer that than getting arrested and getting a five-year sentence and getting a criminal record. But the thing was, back in them days, uh, people knew what the situation was. Okay, so how many years were you in the Essex police before the London I was in there events? from uh, 1992 to ninety four five so about three years i think any other notable stories from when you were in the essex police before we go to the london met yeah i'll tell, I'll tell you one one story which which made me made me realize that life could be short you know as a police officer you never know what you're going into do you um and i'll say it and i'll say it again you know people can judge police officers and they can judge me i've been to prison you know they class me as a bent copper which is fine you know but you've got to remember, when, when anyone puts a police uniform on, the majority of them, and I'm not going to say all of them, don't, don't put that on thinking of themselves. They're thinking of doing something good for the public, which is, which is true. You don't, you don't do that kind of job. When you deal with death, like when you see death and misery, it's not a nice thing to see. You know what I mean? And you don't get a lot of money for it, and you have to deal with the consequences of suicides and murders and, and road accidents. And I've seen it all, and it's not nice. And, and obviously... You know, you, 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 you've got to be hardened to stuff like that. But it also brings back your own mortality. Do you know what I mean? I remember getting a call. Um, it was it was late, uh, 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh get a call. Uh, someone's called the control. We're all sitting in the control. And then someone rings up and says, yeah, I think um, I heard gunshots or a gunshot. So as well as we did at the time, you just say, oh, it's probably not a gunshot. But anyway, said, yeah, we'll get someone down there. Everyone's putting their feet up, having a cup of tea. No one wants to go out. Anyway, about two minutes later, another call comes in. Yeah, so I'm sure I heard a gunshot. So, I've, right, okay. So my inspector at the time I was driving him, so he said, right, Paige, we better go and uh, go and investigate this. So uh, I said, all right, sir. So I got the car around. We got in the car and we drove down to this uh, sort of similar estate to this, like block of flats. And um, as we pull up, it's all in darkness. All the flats are in darkness because it's like, so we pull up, and as we go to approach the communal door, we notice to the left there's a broken window. And um, so I thought that was a bit odd. So uh, we, as we went to, we thought, we'll go and knock on that door because obviously someone's put their window. Maybe that's what it was. The noise was someone breaking the window. So we opened the communal door, knocked on this particular door, no answer. We could hear muffled, a muffled sound inside. What's that? You know, we could hear someone, sound like someone rolling about, you know. And... Uh, so anyway, as we as we bent down to look through the letter, but we thought we had something like a like a, a, 
a gun loading being cocked. So we both ran out, both of us trying to f- push ourselves through the door at the same time, fighting each other to get through the door. We just legged it behind the police car. And um, so we called up on the radio. Yeah, we need to find out who's in this flat and get a line put through and see if we can ring up anyway. No lines come through. And it subsequently transpired that um, there was a fella, he had a domestic with this girl and he'd been locked up in Southend Police Station for a couple of days, I think it was. And he got out, gone to Tilbury, picked up a shotgun, gone round to the flat, gone in there with his girlfriends in there with their young daughter, but her brother's there. He's beat up the brother and tied him up. And that was the muffling side. We could hear he was him rolling about on the floor. And the broken window was in, he had a pump action, if it was a pump action shotgun, it was in blowing the window out. And then obviously the we heard was in reloading and pointing the gun at us behind the door. And um, so the upshot of it was armed police turn up, um, you know, try and get through to this fellow, you know, lad hailer, da 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 da. He's not having any of it. Um, and in the end, he dragged the uh, the child and the girlfriend into this small toilet, put the gun under his chin and blew his head off. Jesus. And uh, we went in there and got the secured the kid, the kid, the child and the, and the girl. And um, there was just nothing left of it. He's just, just a headless corpse. The rest of it was stuck to the ceiling. <sighs> uh, he lost that much blood that when they went, they did the autopsy, they, was, they found it difficult to get any decent specimens of blood out of him. Um, and that, uh, yeah, she was only eight, I think, the child. Holy shit. Yeah. So you so, could have been collateral damage in that. But it makes you think, you know what I mean? It's not all about, it's, it's, it makes things like that make you think about your own life. And, you know, I could quite have easily at the time thought, you know what, stuff this, I'm, I'm off. But I didn't, I stayed with it. Um, I'm, I'm not giving myself a pat on the back for that. I'm just saying that's what, that story there is what many police officers go through day in, day out and worse. You know how, I mean? how, how common is domestic abuse and crimes of Very passion? Very common. I mean, we used to, again, we used to deal with that. The, the, the pet hates for police officers are wife beaters, sex cases, and nonces, as in paedophiles. Uh, they're the pet hates, and they're the, they're the three areas, really, that you're going to get a clump, or you did back in the day. I mean, where I was at Essex or the Met, if we come across a wife beater, they get, they'd be getting a clump. If you want to hit a woman, then know how it feels. It's as simple as that. If you want to touch a, you know, a, a woman, a like, sexiest sort of woman, then you're going to get a clump. If you want to touch a child, you're going to get more than just a clump. And that's what we did back in them days. That, you know, if was it corruption? Was it uh, bent for the job? It was all of them things. But unfortunately, you've got police officers are human beings. You know, I'm not saying it was right at the time, but I was, well, it wasn't justified, but was it right morally? That's a different kettle of fish. That's open to debate whether or not a child sex offender, when he's caught, he's committed an offence, he gets a clump. Because I'll tell you one thing, he'll remember the clump more than he remembers the going to the going to court and getting a slap on the wrist. You know one, I mean? one of my very first blog entries was about a guy who had um, tied up and tortured a sex offender in prison. Mm. And I asked the public, you know, what do you think of this? And 99% were for it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem I've, and I've, and I've put in, it's in the book, I've fitted up sex offenders, and I've beat them up, stitched them up, and locked them up, you know. Uh, and to me, back in them days, you know, it, it, you think uh, the trouble is you have um, you have people that are armchair critics, which is fine. We're, we're, we're all a, a, an even society, so everyone should have their fair share in saying. But unless you've looked into the eyes of a victim of child sex abuse or a woman who's been battered, you know, or, or a lady that's been walking along and been raped, and you look into their eyes and you have to take their statements and read, and then it has to be read out in court what's actually happened to them, 
you don't know what you're talking about. It's a different kettle of fish. The, the podcast that made me cry when I was interviewing the person recently was Mike Tarraga, and he was a victim. Horrendous. Mm. He was rented out on the meat yeah. rack. Yeah. Um, if you guys out there watching this video have not seen the testimony of a victim, hardcore abuse in the Kerr homes, got rented out as a kid. Mm. Um, I'll put the description in the description box below this video. I'll put a link to that if you want to watch, so you can understand exactly what what Paul is saying here. So, why did you move over to the Met? Right, what happened with, with that was um, I knew people in the Met um, through karate, um, senior officers. I knew a chief superintendent, um, some inspectors and sergeants and some PCs. And there was a British Place Karate Championships being held at Hendon. Um, so I got time off. Well, I was actually on night, Jerry, so I didn't get the time off. What happened was I went there during the day, ended up fighting, got into the finals, the grand finals, as it were, they called it. And... Uh, I looked at my watch and thought, I'm not going to get back for night duty, so I'm going to have to go, leave the, leave the finals. But the assistant commissioner of the Met was there at the time, so Brian Hayes, and he was a black belt karate. He was he one of the organisers. So my the, the Met the Met people that I knew went up to him and said, look, Paul's meant to be in the finals, but he's got to go back on duty. So he rang the local borough commander and said, look, Paul, your officer's here, he's in the finals, can he stay? So they said, oh, yeah, of course he can. That's not what they told me during the day. They said, you better be on duty, mate. <laughs> Oh, but if it's all right when an assistant commissioner rings up and says, "Can he stay?" It's all right then, isn't it? So that's that's how I, I got in, got to meet him, and he said to me, "Oh, you should come over to the Met." And I was thinking at the time, you know, the money's better. I knew people in there, and and so I, um, I transferred over. Um, ended up at Marylebone Police Station. That's right, quite central busy, London. Is it? it was. I mean, it's been knocked down there. Sadly, actual police station's been knocked down. They're building flats on it. Um, but um, yeah, it was a busy, it was a busy nick. Um, you know, there was lots to do there. Well, there are a new set of challenges there because you're in a city, yeah. and instead of more on the outskirts. Yeah, I mean, I uh, like I said to you before, um, as I said to you before, there's 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 no set of challenges. Is you in Essex, you was a name. You was, people knew you were by name. You know, whatever nick you went to, everyone knew you because it's it's a it's a smaller environment. The Met, you're a number. You're not so many officers know who you are really from other nicks because there's so many of you and the dangers of that is you don't know who you, to trust and who you can trust mm. whereas in when when you're in Essex you knew everyone and if there was a pardon the expression if there was a snitch amongst you mm. everyone knew who it was and they'd get terrorised and they'd get they'd be gone whereas in the Met you don't know who you're working with what they're like um, and and as I said to you before I immediately became apparent to me that um, there was officers there that really didn't have a clue how to deal with the public. You know what I mean? You know they would they would start a fight literally for no reason, and that's that's not what I was about. You know, I I came from a multicultural environment. I'm from the East End of London. Lots of friends, black, Asian, Greek, Turkish. You know, uh, I didn't, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I witnessed a, a, a racism because there was a lot of black officers where I work. But what I'm saying is you should understand people when you're dealing with them, their cultures and how to talk to people. You know, you had a lot of people, a lot of officers, or not so a lot, some officers that I met who just were incapable of understanding um, a person's culture or understanding, a, you know, where a person's coming from, if you know what I mean. And that would cause friction and that from friction would cause issues and arguments and then from that would cause a fight. Um, so inexperienced people, 
I would say we, we, we're a lot, you know we're in the Met, um, and then I understood why you sort of obviously there's more offices in the Met, but they did have a bad reputation at the time when I went over there. I'm not saying I made it any better, <laughs> but you know it um, it did it did open my eyes to think you know what I've got to watch my back here because there's too many people that can get you in the shit. And on the streets of London, is there a lot more crime? A lot more crime, a lot more danger. Um, found myself fighting a lot more, not through want of fighting. I mean, what I'm saying is, uh, if you was that type of officer, you could have a fight every day of the week. But it's not about fighting at the end of the day. It's about keeping the streets safe. It was at the time, um, you know, and, and, and getting the right people. Um, and, and you could end up literally... Um, walking down the road and coming across a robbery some days every every hour because what you had was a mix of poor people living with rich people. Listen, Green Estate, you had uh, sort of a, a poor estate there, but then five minutes down the road, you've got St. John's Wood, multi-million pound houses, Rolls Royces, Mercedes. So obviously you had a lot of issues with robberies, street robberies around there, drugs, a lot of drugs. Um, and so, yeah, there was... Um, it was it was certainly a busy a busy place to be. You mentioned you had an encounter with a corpse that had, he'd blown his head off with the shotgun. Mm. Did you come across corpses at the Met? Um, yeah, I uh, I mean I dealt with a, a couple of uh, sudden deaths. Nothing really is. I mean I dealt with some gory stuff uh, in Essex, which I haven't obviously I've told you a few things. But um, in the Met, I dealt with a I dealt with a murder actually uh, just before I went to. Uh, just before I went to the Royal Protection Department, it was a murder of a, um, a, a transvestite prostitute. It was only a young young person. Uh, but the call was, I was driving the area car at the time and I get called there. We've got a fatal stab in an address. I think it was near Foley Street. I don't know if you know the Langham Hotel. It's on Regent Street. And opposite that is the BBC Radio 1 building. Um, it's, it's a pretty big, uh, iconic building. It's, it's where they do all the Radio 1 stuff. Well, anyway, this... this uh, this um, particular um, address where this stabbing had taken place was about two, three minutes walk from this radio, one place. Um, and so we go there, emergency call, go there, enter the premises, is a, a ground floor, first floor flat. And there's a, a person, we thought was it long hour and a pair of red knickers on, but it was it was a mess. It had been stabbed, violently murdered. Um, there was handprints all up the wall. So it was a proper, there's obviously a, fight or trying to you know save it save himself and we thought it was a female at the time and uh, then the maid came in because it was a prostitute had a maid that looked after the bookings or whatever and said that's no, a male transvestite so i said right okay and then she said oh he's got aids so obviously at that time back in 20 odd years ago we, we just split once we made sure this area was secure and there was nobody inside secured the scene and um what had happened is, so we did the log, so the tech murder investigation team turned up uh, to take over. And um, so we went. And then about a month later, I was on a firearms course, and they got on roll and I was doing my firearms course. I was at Lippitz Hill. And I bumped into a detective inspector who was going on protection as well. And uh, we got chatting. And um, I was saying to him, oh, I was, I was, was that Marilyn Bone? He said, oh, was you at Marilyn I said, yeah. I said, I dealt with a murder just before I came up. He said, oh, so did I. He goes, oh, I was in charge of the murder. I said, was it that prostitute? He went, yeah. He goes, oh, with that, it was a funny one. Basically, what had happened is the uh, 
how can I put it? Villains had got had heard that she'd got an appointments book with famous names in it. Um, and so they had gone around there to get the book so they could blackmail people from the appointments book. And obviously the victim didn't want to give the book up and hence why he was, he was uh, savagely stabbed and killed. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm going to give you, can tell as much as I can, but I'm not going to drop the person in it because it's not fair. You know what I mean? It's not, uh, but what I'm trying to say is, if you if you work for BBC Current Affairs, don't throw fucking stones in greenhouses. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, this uh, detective says. Uh, so yeah, we got the we found the book. Anyway, one of the names in it was a prominent uh, radio presenter at the time, and he was a big person on telly. And um, he uh, basically his name was in the book. So the detective went round and made the arrangements to go and visit him. Um, went to went to the officers and he was sitting there with a solicitor already. So the detective said to him, uh, do you know the, the victim, whatever the person's name was? He said, no, never met him in life. I said, right, okay. So is your fingerprints going to be in this flat, anywhere in this flat? And then the the person, the, the suspect at the time, because everyone's a suspect. If your name's in an appointment book, you're a suspect. Uh, says, oh, um, I don't know. I think a friend of mine used to live in the flat. Um, so my prints might be in there. You know, so uh, obviously he wasn't coughing, coughing to the fact. He doesn't know, didn't know why his name was in the book, da, 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 all this tosh. And um, so anyway, and then my my, my uh, friend, my det- the detective said, uh, so I just want to let you know that this person also had AIDS or HIV. He said, and this celebrity's like went pale white and nearly burst into tears. And um, they left him at that. But yeah, um, it, it was his name was in the book amongst others. I interviewed John Wedger, who worked at London Met, and then when he was working in Vice, everything was going well until he tracked some of the customers were politicians mm. and celebrities, yeah. and then orders would come down from the top to shut mm. the investigations down. Mm. Does that happen in the police? It can do in certain circumstances. I mean, in that particular case, the, the investigation team, they, I think they actually arrested someone and it was convicted for murder on that particular case. And then it all came out about the book and what they wanted and to do the blackmail. Um, but investigations, depending on what that has, how, um, how can I put it, how important they are to the general public in terms of public decency awareness and if it's a public figure. Um, obviously, the, the, the Met Police, along with most other police forces, will look at a... a a case and say, is it in the public interest that these people are, are arrested for whatever, whatever it is? I don't know. I mean, so you could have cross investigations, which happens in which, so for example, you could have a team investigating a certain person, but they come across another team from a, a different, uh, you know, like the NCA might be investigating. them, So they get told to drop the investigation because another investigation that crosses it is more important. If you see what I'm trying to say, yeah. So the impression that you get is they've been told to drop their investigation, but they haven't been told why because they want to retain secrecy of the first investigation. If you, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you'll get a, you'll get people say, "Oh, we were doing the investigation, but we were told to drop it." Yeah, but you were to- told to drop it maybe because they were looking at that person or someone else connected to that person, and they didn't want to overlap it because this this case takes priority. So that's one explanation that could happen where you get two different teams because they don't all communicate. 
you'll get you'll get officers from another force may come across a drugs operation in the Met and they don't realise and then it intertangles and they say, well, look, that happened in my case. In my case, when they were looking at me, um, the uh, um, uh, what's, what police force was it now? Well, uh, anyway, another police force was looking into me um, and the Met came across and said, no, we're dealing with this. So they take the investigation, do you see what I mean? And they, they do that all the time. I mean, they can be shut down, yeah. I mean, Well, the, the classic example then, Prince Charles had this really strong relationship with Jimmy Savile. Mm. I read Princess Di's book in her own words, and she said she thought Savile was creepy. The royals brought him in mm. to give marriage guidance to them. And mm. there were reports given to the police over the years about Savile's activity, but it never came out until after he, he died. Do you think that there was a conspiracy to keep that concealed until after his death? Because he had these powerful relationships like what Prince Andrew had with Epstein. Yeah, I mean, you, there's always a chance that that um, if there's sensitive information appertaining to a senior politician or a member of the fa- royal family, that it is, that is withheld or, or, you know, it's pushed, pushed under because obviously, again, it all comes back to the threshold is it in the public interest. That's what they use, public interest. And then you've got PII, public interest immunity, which is what they, if they don't want to give information out, they'll, they'll hide behind that. There's a lot of different things they can do. Um, covering up criminal offences, I, I would say back in the 70s and 80s, that was clear that when you look now at the sex scandals that are going on with paedophiles, it was clear that those things did happen. I'm just watching the Profumo Affair yeah. documentary. It's on the BBC. Part yeah. three was on last night. And that shows yeah. how things are covered up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you cannot, you've always got to have an open mind. Um, you know, with, when you, when you listen to things about investigations that were, that didn't, that should have occurred, that didn't occur, you know, um, and certainly when you look at Savoy and a lot of BBC, there, there is a lot, there, there was a lot of um, leeway afforded these people. It's clear. It's obvious. Um, but times have changed in terms of the way the public perception is. And like I said, in the police service back in the end days when I was 25 years ago, you could get away with a lot more than what you could get away with there. So like now, it's the same with, with sex crimes. You, it's, it's more, the, the investigations are a lot tighter, although we're still getting fuck-ups now. Look at Carl Beach and what happened there, you know. But that's not to say part of those investigations are still, should not be stopped because there are, Obviously, there's clearly there's politicians that have that have done wrong. Was Savile entering the palace under your watch? Was that yeah, a different? Yeah, I mean, era? I, no, he was. I, I remember him coming uh, a couple of times when I was there. And to be fair, he was quite funny. He was quite a funny person. He was quite amenable. So when you look at him, when you think, when you look at him there, if you saw him walking down the street, you think that's a sex case, wouldn't you? You know, in the shiny tracksuit and a little tiny shorts, you'd think he was a. He, he looks like a. You'd a see it now, but back then yeah. we all grew up on yeah. Savile, didn't we? We, we all thought grew he was up funny, on him, a caricature. You, you, you see him, you know. He was quite funny, and we we all liked him. To be fair, we you didn't think he was a creepy character. But then that's the facade, isn't it? A lot of you know a lot of paedophiles are the very same. They've got they've got a split personality, and for no one would have believed about Savile. And this is a problem a lot of their victims had when they were piping up. Who who was really going to believe them against you know Sir Jimmy? Not many. They, they were probably classed as like cranks, um, but they were actually telling the truth. Did you actually have any conversations with Savile? Only when, when he came into the palace a couple of times, he came in. Does um, he does he come in his own car? Yeah, or? No, no, he came up in a tracksuit. <laughs> he came up in a tracksuit to see, I can't remember who's coming in to see now, but he would, he would have a laugh in the gig with us at the gate and we'd let him in. Yeah, he'd, he'd walk in in a tracksuit. Wow. Yeah, he didn't, 
you know, the t- two times I saw him, he was had casual clothes on. Like, and like I said, the, the, the best time was when he had the shell suit on and he was coming in. Um, so yeah, um, you know, the, the, the thing with, with, um, celebrities as well, I don't know if you've noticed that no, not many people have piped up to uh, challenge Prince, Prince Andrew's behavior as in like none. I've not seen it. I think Piers Morgan might have said, you know, he's a disgrace or whatever. But there's not many um, celebrities that have actually condemned Prince Andrew's activities or certainly his interview, you know, where he's where he's basically disrespected survivors of child sex abuse. And what's your interpretation of celebrities not Because Because I've of- seen so many of them go through that, them palace doors. Who really wants to be out of favour with the royal family? And this is the issue you've got in public with, with celebrities who wants to be out of favor with the Royal family. Cause the Royal family are literally linked with every charity. So, and I've said in my Twitter, I said, what, what child um, protection agency or charity has actually stood up and said, Prince Andrew's a disgrace. None. Because there will be a, a Prince Charles will be a patron or princess Anne will be a patron. So that they're all interconnected. So my issue is, you know, with the Epstein, Epstein scandal and Prince Andrew, the bigger picture is, is child sex abuse. You know, all he's done is, you know, I personally don't think anything's going to happen to Prince Andrew. I've said it all along. Um, there's there's no evidence that I can see that's going to come to light that's going to put him in the frame. Um, Virginia Roberts has made allegations, but those allegations have gone nowhere. Um, the FBI, if they've liaised with the British government, which they would have done, would have most certainly decided that they're not going to. Because if you think about Prince Andrew... Uh, going to court that's just an impossibility in my eyes no, given this, given where I worked and what I know and how the system works I can't can't see him um, being being convicted of any criminal offence or being indicted for one So Prince Andrew um, I've read all of the victims statements and there are serious allegations from Virginia one of the victims said he grabbed a breast of a puppet on his hand yeah. Virginia said that he was in an orgy with um, underage girls. Um, so there's massive public pressure on the FBI to do something about this. Mm. Supposedly, because we've got these stories in the tabloids and in the news and we don't know what's real, what's not real. Supposedly, Virginia is the target of an FBI investigation right now, but Prince Andrew is not. But the lawyers of the victims are requesting that they speak to him. And if he touches down on American soil, he's going to get subpoenaed um, into court and all this stuff. He's going to, all this legal stuff's going to get thrown at him. I mean, what I'd say is, and this is potentially a key, right, to the fact that he's not going to be subject to any subpoenas or any indictments, is because if you're, if you're involved in an investigation or you're being investigated, you're knowingly being investigated, would you go on telly and talk about it, knowing that you could be potentially indicted. You wouldn't, unless you knew that you weren't. The reason being is, you keep your mouth shut until the investigation is is over and done with. You don't go on telly and give an explanation, because all that's all you're doing is you're giving information to the opposing team that they can then use against you when they actually do decide to arrest you and say, "Well, you said this, and this isn't correct," because that that interview he gave, there was I pulled it apart myself. All right, um, and. For him to have been that, with legal advisors, he would have had a legal team around him, and they would have. Or, or bet he, if if they thought there was a possibility of any indictments coming his way, they'd have shut the idea of him doing the interview down. So he must have had some guarantees that this isn't going anywhere for him to, to publicly 
spoke. Yeah, I, I came to a conclusion only recently that he went into that interview knowing he has absolute immunity exactly. and exactly. that he would never spend a day in prison in his life. And he could say absolutely anything. Do you, do you, it, does, it doesn't matter. Well, well that's, that's the whole point. And people need to understand that, that they're saying, oh, we might get indicted. He's not going to get indicted for anything. If there was a chance of any legal, any lawyer worth his weight in gold would tell his client, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, because potentially you, there's an investigation that you may be involved in. But obviously he's been told, he's been given a guarantee from whoever that, you know, that nothing's going to happen with this. The evidence must have been poured over and poured over. The FBI aren't saying anything, but it's like anything with a police investigation. The, the majority of the times, they know in the first 24 hours what the situation is, and then the rest is evi- <clears throat> excuse me, evidence gathering to confirm what the original suspicions were. So whatever Virginia Roberts has said, it's it's still not made enough of an impact to stop Prince Andrew. Because he, he says he was he's come out and had to give an explanation. Well, if, if, if there's a criminal inquiry and potentially you're a suspect, it doesn't matter. You keep your mouth shut until there's a court case. Then you, your lawyers will put forward a, a story. Yeah, first thing your lawyer says, plead the fifth. Yeah. Ask for a lawyer. Don't speak to the media. Yeah, you know, and I, 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 what what they do is, I mean, the palace have got a press office and they deal with all the communication. So what happens every day is the press clippings from that, that day will come to the palace and they will be given to the Queen. And what that is, is the press officer will look for them and say, if there's any shitty stories about the members of the royal family, or whatever it is, obviously they will brief the Queen. But usually what will happen is newspapers will come to the press officer and say, look, we've got this story. And they will try and, def- the press officer will try and do a deal to deflect the story. So look, if you forget that story, we'll give you a nice story of, I don't know, Prince Prince Edward's going to visit some charity and you will give you the excellent, or something, do you know what I mean? Just to, to dumb it down. So there is a trade-off between newspapers and the press office. So let's get it right now that the, the press don't always give you the full picture, right? Sometimes there's a trade-off and they and they agree to not give the full story out. You know what I mean? And and so when you hear, for example, just I'll quickly say this, when you hear a spokesman said or a close friend said, no, there is no close friend. That's the press office putting out a, you know, a, a, a narrative out there for you to soak up. So did you see the... Uh- reporter who was on the hot mic who didn't know she was getting recorded mm. and she said i had this epstein story years ago yeah, from we had we had clinton yeah. we had everybody you know but the royal family got wind yeah. they were going to cut us off they weren't yeah. going to give us a story yeah, about it yeah but that's what i've just said to you. it's blackmail it's blackmail and that is how it works you know there's a trade-off um but what's happened now is because this story has sort of gathered pace their sort of trade-offs aren't really worth much now um but I think the most important thing to remember with Prince Andrew is that everything he said in that interview, or a lot of it, was just rubbish, complete rubbish. What is your analysis of the interview? Right. First and foremost, uh, he was lying. Um, and, I, and I detailed this in the interview I gave with Ian um, in relation to the travel arrangements and the Pizzeria Express story. Well, if that was a genuine um, sort of visit he was going on with with his daughter, which is another member of the royal family, so you've got at least two, maybe three members of the royal family, you don't just turn up to Pizza Hut and queue up, or Pizza Express and queue up in the queue, do you? What would have happened is he'd have had a protection officer who would have gone down there, who would have booked the tables, they would have been cordoned off, and then that would have been ready to go, so he'd have been out the car, straight to the booth, not standing in the queue. So that was a pre-planned situation therefore it would have all been notes with him and made 
They would have done checks. They would have spoken to the manager of the Pizza Express and saying, listen, we're bringing the principal down here. So that everyone would have known what the situation was. And purely and simply, uh, it would have been all cordoned off and an officer may well have been there awaiting the arrival just in case there was some rowdy people turn up. And then they would have called up and said, it's not a good, you know, it's not a good place to be. Um, drive off. It was quite quiet when we went there, wasn't it? Yeah. And to people watching this, we have filmed at Pizza Express Walking and we have talked to the staff there. If you want to watch that video, click down in the description box below this video and there's an Epstein playlist. The link will be down there. And Paul referenced what he did with Ian. Let me just uh, expand on that. Paul did a YouTube video with Ian Puddick, who has his own YouTube channel. I'm going to put the link to that clip also in the description box below this video if you want to go down and click over and watch that on Ian Puddick's channel as well. So, okay, so what 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 else did you find? Uh, so the- just, just on that, to be clear, yeah. so there would have been uh, documentary evidence, and I said it, it was quoted from me in, uh, in the newspapers, the national papers, just after this interview, that what would have happened is there would have been a record of that of that visit, officers' entry in the notebooks, uh, uh, maybe a security assessment they would have done on that um, because it was a, an actual visit. And as I, I explained the reasons why they would have done that. Um, but those those notes um, would have un- would, they can ke- be kept between six and thirty years, so there's potentially a, a chance that there would have been notes to, that would have corroborated Prince Andrew's story. But then that doesn't mean to say he wasn't in Tramp's nightclub four hours later. We we noticed that Pizza. We looked at the sign on the door in Pizza yeah. Express walking. It closes at ten thirty p.m. Yeah. yeah. What time do you think Tramp's nightclub opens at? 10.30. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, it's the, the issue you've got there is, look, um, again, coming back to the officer's notes, even if the FBI request uh, information from the Royal Protection Command, they would get a big fat no. They're not going to get any documentation from the British police whatsoever in relation to Prince Andrew's movements or anything else. But to me, uh, the issue would be that where they would have documentation is the Epstein visit. Because when a member of the royal family, and I, and I said this previously, any, any member of the royal family, if they're going to go abroad, they don't just jump on a plane and go. It has to be assessed. There's a, a, an office within the Royal Protection Department that deals with all the tr- foreign travel and the assessments and the liaisons with the foreign police forces and all the rest of it. As you can imagine, it's, a, it's not a small operation. So if a member is such as Prince Andrew, because he's like one of the main members of the royal family, is going abroad, what would happen is it would all be pre-planned. So the Royal Protection Command would contact the local police force, um, which would have been the New York police, I, I should imagine. But also uh, they've probably got government protection. I think they have government protection officers because they, I'm sure they were with Prince Andrew at the Ep- on the Epstein visit is subsequently transpired. So what would happen is we would, we would uh, give them uh, the address of where Prince Andrew was staying, when we're coming, you know, the team's coming, um, and they would do the necessary checks on the premises and the people within those premises. So they would check the freehold to see who owns it to make sure it's not, I don't know, a gangster or, you know, whatever else. And in this case, it was <laughs> Mr. Epstein. So obviously they would have checked out Mr. Epstein's details, had Andrew had given them. If he hadn't, his details would have still come up on the freehold for the property. So obviously they would have checked out Mr. Epstein in their police computer and it would have come up that he was a convicted child sex offender. So the security stroke threat assessment that the Americans would have done and passed back to us would have noted all that in there. 
would have said that this is not a suitable address for a member of the British royal family to stay at for the reasons listed. And obviously they would have explained Epstein and, and whatever else, the convictions. So that information would have then been passed to Prince Andrew directly through his personal protection officer, or it could have been done through the commander. And they would have basically said, uh, we advise you not to go um, to, to these, stay with this, with this gentleman in these premises. So when I talk about paperwork trial, you've had emails back and forth. Um, you may have even had uh, written letters back and forth, but you certainly would have had emails from the Americans back to us with their advice. Um, and then there probably would have been a security meeting with Royal Protection. What I mean by that is they were, the commander would have sat down with the officers, protection officers, and said, right, this is the report. This is what we've got. Uh, we've analysed it. We need to advise Purple 41, which is Prince Andrew's code name, uh, against visiting this person. That would have been done. Anyone who says that would not have been done is is lying uh, or don't know anything about security. Um, so that information would have been passed to Prince Andrew. So Prince Andrew would have said, no, I'm going, and refused to listen to the advice given. That would have been noted on the notes by the Royal Protection Command that he refused. Well, why did you refuse when you was told clearly? Because he, for some reason, he felt the need to go over, and in his own words, which was just rubbish, four days to say goodbye to someone. You know, I'll be quite frank there. If that was anyone else, a normal person, yeah, and they found out their a friend of theirs was a convicted child sex offender, you'd ring them up, say, delete my number and fuck right off and put the phone down, wouldn't you? Exactly. As simple as that. That is the sum total of the conversation you would have. Um, but obviously, Prince Andrew spent four days apparently saying goodbye. Now, the problem he's got as well is to say um, that he did it out of respect or whatever to go over there. Well, what he was about, so honourable. That was it. The on, did the honourable thing. Well, I'm sorry. What you just did there was trashed every survivor of child sex trafficking, child sex exploitation, and you know any survivor of child sex abuse. You've dis dismissed their feelings and, and what they've gone through in one fell swoop, which gives you an indication as to what his mind's, which is important now, his mindset, how, how he ticks, how he thinks, because now you know that he's very careless and he doesn't understand about human life. So that shows you that he doesn't care, you know, which is a big sign, it's a big sign, you know what I mean? On that point then, you know, if he'd have got up on an interview and said, well, everywhere I go, is logged and I can produce the logs of where I was that day. This is, you know, my best evidence. But he wouldn't say that because that would basically end up with his own crucifixion. Yeah, but also don't forget his protection officers because uh, I know they dragged one of them up and they went and found him. And he said, oh, I can't remember what I was, I was doing 20 odd years ago, which to be fair to him, he probably wouldn't. But the other issue would be if any of his protection officers had seen anything untoward and turned a blind eye, well, by opening their mouths now, they're incriminating themselves in potentially a criminal investigation, you know, a crime. So, of course, now they're not going to they're not going to say, even if they did say anything, they're not going to say they did now. They're not going to be immune from prosecution, you know. So you've got that side of the coin as well, that whatever notes were taken by officers, or even if there was a concern, say if officers were with Prince Andrew and they thought this is not right and they would have contacted the commander, would have, it would have been a call back to base and said, look, this is the situation, what do we do? Uh, unless it's, a, a, like a, um, I don't know, he's, he's a physically attacking someone or they've 
you know, is raping someone, they're not going to be in the same room in terms of watching all this go down. Do you know what I mean? But if they've got a suspicion, then they would have had to get advice from back home from the commander. Um, and so there's a there's a there's a chain of command, and all those that chain of command potentially could be incriminated in something what Prince Andrew's done. So why then would the Royal Protection Command give up any information that could incriminate a number of officers? So we're aware of this one criminal situation. From your experience, would you say that Prince Andrew was the type of person who would override his security advice and get in other situations? Yeah, I mean, th- this is this is the whole point about, um, I think, what happened with what I said 10 years ago. The point I was trying to make 10 years ago, that it's not just police officers who abuse their position of trust or their position of authority. It's also members of the royal family. Um, and the incidents that I described um, in relation to Prince Andrew have come back basically to bite him on the backside because if you, for example, um, and I've said this, if we go back to basics, so Buckingham Palace is one of the most protected buildings in the country, right? I know there's people that I've said previously, oh, yeah, what about Fagan? That was 40 years ago, right? What they need to understand is the level of uh, uh, protection that is that is you know contained within the palace now is a lot different than it was 40-odd years ago. You know, you've got pressure beams. You've got, I'm not going to go through all the details, but you've got sensors in the ground, uh, you've got beams going across, you know, the the, the, the four courts. You've got pressure pads on on railings. You've got Israeli wire, which is alarmed. So the point being, if if someone did uh, breach the outer perimeter, they would be tracked within a feet of every step where they went. And the reaction, what would happen is, you've got armed officers on the various number of posts, all heavily armed, and there would be a, a quick reaction force, if you want to call it that. Um, that has already been waiting to go. So you'd have the officers on post, but then you'd have another team that would come out, would be deployed to go to that area. All right. And um, you then have a helicopter would be there within seconds. You'd have dog fans. It would be a total lockdown. So when people um, dismiss, when I say, oh, the palace is secure, they say, well, people got in. No, Fagan got in. That's right. But after that, the security is ramped up to a point where it's literally impossible to penetrate the inner part of the palace. Um, so you've got all that security, multi-million pounds of technology and equipment. You've got police officers, and we're there to do one thing, to stop people that shouldn't be coming into the palace getting in. That's the sole reason, and protecting those within it. Some people might not be aware of the Fagan situation. Could you just um, clarify Michael what Michael Fagan was, was uh, a gentleman of about, must have been about 40 years ago now, who, breached the palace, got climbed over the wall and actually got into the Queen's bedroom. Um, I mean, I mean that was to get, that was just a stroke of luck to get her into her bedroom, but without going, without breaching security and getting myself in trouble, I can understand how he did it from where he got in and going along the certain where he was and the Queen would leave her window open at certain times. So, um, you know, the problem you've got is you've got officers outside her bedroom door, but obviously not contained within our apartment but there are officers at posted that's un- underneath our bedroom window so it's a lot different as i say than what it was back then when fagan actually got in and sat on the queen's bed and had a conversation with her that would not happen today um but they've obviously they've had breaches of security before and we've had fathers of justice get over the fence but obviously not penetrate penetrate the interior of the palace just get over the fence and climb along the colonnade which is which is totally different um than actually having a you know a suspect get into the palace, 
So to actually get in, like I said, there's a there's a series of ways. Uh, you've got to be invited, obviously, to get in unless you work there. Then you're backwards and forwards. But there's a certain set protocol to get into the palace. And same with sort of houses of parliament and stuff like that. And that is, there's a, there's a post. If you look at the front of the palace, you've got a security post there and you'll see a policeman standing there. Um, and that's called the 1-1 one, one post. So that's the first point of call for a visitor. There is another entrance point around the side, which is called the side door. And that's usually for tradesmen. You know, we call it the numpty entrance because it's the likes of me and you would be going through there, wouldn't it? We would be going through the front of the palace, would we? Let's be <laughs> honest. Right? So um, so you would come up and present yourself to the officers on that post. Now, what happens is first thing in the morning, there's another security post inside the palace at the front with police officers in it. And they get all the appointments for all the members of the royal family sent down to them. And they write it in their book. So in the morning at nine o'clock, they ring those appointments through to, to the officers on the gate. They then write it in their book so they know exactly who's coming and at what time and who they're going to see. Obviously, it makes sense. So John Smith would turn up, say, at 10 o'clock and say, I'm here to see the Queen. We get a lot of people turning up to say they're here to see the Queen. Not necessarily all of them are uh, invited. So we check the book. Yeah, John Smith's in the book. So they, then you ring through to the neck, to the privy purse confirm the appointment they say yes then you allow him to go into the palace Whereas, what does the privy purse mean it's it's an old-fashioned office which deals with all the appointments i'm guessing i mean i wasn't a royal i'll be honest with you i was an east end copper um, and i went to royalty for my own reasons i wasn't a royal lover um as such it was a lot of money you earned a lot of money up there for doing very little um but i wasn't i wasn't like a, i wasn't interested in the palace regalia or i did my job to the best of my ability but i wasn't sort of interested in all the flash names i just knew privy purse because that's where all the appointments come down from uh, and so basically if so you get through to the privy person they show you to the the principal who you're there to see so there's a see what i mean there's a set procedure you can't just walk into the palace there can't be any mistakes made um and all the members of the royal family understand that they have to provide the names of the visitors i'm only one who doesn't who never did was prince andrew so that protocol was not followed by him and him alone. So Prince Andrew, Prince Edward, Princess Anne, Prince Philip, Queen's husband, the Queen, um, all those, all those members of the royal family, even though some didn't live at the palace, would have appointments there, would all still follow the same procedure with Prince Andrew. And it happened a lot um, with young women. Um, we were not told their names. We were we were told not to ask the names. They would present themselves at the palace. They hit to see Prince Andrew, and we would just have to let them in. Which was a clear breach of the security protocol, and it was, and that security pro- protocol was put in place in order to stop people getting into the palace who shouldn't be in there. Um, so we uh, complained about this on a number of occasions, um, and were told it is what it is. It, you know, it's his ass, and if he wants to do that, then he can do that. Yeah. So, so we've gone through the fact that he um, he was the only member of the royal family to. Uh, to breach the security protocol when it comes to guests entering the palace. Um, now, my experience, this is, as again, it's all my personal experience that I'm I'm telling you now. And for the doubters out there that say, oh, how can we trust this officer who's been to prison? Well, it's quite simple. That Has anyone challenged me publicly about what I've said since I said it 10 years ago? No one. Uh, I was with police officers, serving officers, when all these incidents occurred. Has any of these officers who are my friends, have any of them come, any of them come forward and denied what i've said no because they won't because it's the truth um so everything that i'm saying there 
is is a hundred percent what I saw and what I heard. Nothing more, nothing less. So Prince Andrew, um, his main his main sort of uh, problem was with with us was the amount of females that would enter the palace and not follow security procedure. And as I said to you, that that is an issue for the reason of outline because you do get people coming up to the front of the palace and saying, I'm here for the Duke. I mean, and they're, they're actually quite mad and they're not. So how do we know one time a person's come up and says, I'm here for Prince Andrew, but they're not really there and we just let them in. Who's going to end up walking the beat in Brixton? It's going to be me. But that's what we had to live with. That's the type of man he was because whenever it went wrong, for example, um, I remember one occasion a female turned up at the front of the palace. There was three of us on duty at this time. And um, she said, oh, I'm here for Prince Andrew. It was probably about, it just come in about an hour previously, just whizzed in in his jag. Um, but I think it was about nine o'clock. So there was no privy purse. There was no office staff because after five o'clock, the office staff go home. So there's no privy purse. It's just us and then letting them through into what is known as the quad, which is a quadrangle within the centre of the palace. And contained within that is the Queen's door, the Duke of Edinburgh's door, and Prince Andrew's got his own door. So there's different entrances for different members of the royal family. So um, on this particular occasion, the, the young female um, approaches us and says she's, she's here to visit Prince Andrew. Well, we didn't have anything in the book because we, we don't put anything in the book because it's Prince Andrew. We've not got her name, so we can't ring anyone to confirm it. We couldn't get hold of his footman, which would usually do and say, look, this is one of the uh, non-entry, um, you know, one of these guests that we're not putting in the book, uh, is she expected? Well, we couldn't get hold of him, so we couldn't confirm at this time. So rather than let this person in, we we dared to say, look, sorry, we can't let you in. So she said, oh, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll ring him on, the, on his mobile. So she proceeded to ring Prince Andrew, who was in, because his, his apartments faced the front of the palace, so he clearly could look down and see us. Um, and so she just said to him, oh, it's Andrew, it's me. Um, the officers won't let me in because I, they, I'm not expected, apparently. So we, we could hear him on the phone. He said, put one of the officers on the phone. So my colleague picked the phone up, and he basically said to me, said to him, uh, listen to me, you fat, lardy-ass cunt. Let my guest in now. I'll come down there immediately. Um, and so we all heard it. Even the, the female guest went bright red. So my colleague, and, and unfortunately, he was quite a plump boy. So he's obviously looking out the window, could see that it was my, my colleague who was a bit plump. That's why he's called him fat. Um, he's giving the phone back to the female. We've just let her go. Just let her go straight into the palace. Um, you know, I mean... So when he's on the BBC interview and he's talking about, you know, I am a polite person, honourable, yeah. I speak in terms of manner unbecoming. No. The incident you've just described was that perhaps he was just enraged at that one situation. It might have been an extrapolation, or was he generally like that? Have you well, got other examples? Your ties twisted. Well, there you go. Um, if I thought it was just one example, I probably wouldn't have mentioned it because I've probably given the benefit of that. But unfortunately, it's not the, the only time he's ever been rude. I mean, another occasion um, we were we were in the police lodge and we get a call that there's a. Um, unidentified person on the Queen's corridor. Albeit the Queen was not in residence at this time, but the security cameras couldn't work out who it was wandering up and down. So obviously they sent sent um, myself and uh, two PCs and a sergeant to go and investigate to just ascertain who it was. Um, so we were, two of us went one way around the corridor and two of, two of us went the other way in order to, to come over end of them. And as we got closer, it was Prince Andrew just dressed scruffily. 
Um, and the sergeant approached him and said, I'm really sorry, Your Highness. We, we got called because no one could recognise who it was on camera. And we were just coming to make sure that it was an intruder. <laughs> and he said, he said, listen to me, you. this is my house and I'll go where I want. Now, fuck off. You know, um, and you know, he's saying that to his four police officers. We've come there to do a job, but you know, to we're there for his protection and, and the protection of the, the royal family, and we're there because we've seen a potential intruder. Um, and, his life depends on that. You well, think he would cherish? I mean, you guys? unfortunately, that's the attitude that he had, um, um, and he was he was just a rude and abusive, obnoxious person. Now, talking about dressing scruffily, just to divert real quick. Hmm. In the BBC interview, Andrew said he never goes out in casual yeah. clothes in no, London. I, I said this previously. He's, he's, he's talking rubbish. He, he used to sometimes come back in a shirt and chinos, uh, a shirt without a tie, with uh, like um, like a golfing, like a Pringle-type jumper on. He would come back casually, casually dressed on quite a few occasions. He he would only go out dressed in cert, sh- certain tie, shirt and tie if it's uh, sort of an official engagement. But a lot of the times I'd, I'd see him in like a polo, t-shirt and what have you um so i don't know why he even went down that road so these young women that are slipping in and out Mm. some people have said and it's a minority of people and they have said well virginia roberts was 17 a man having sex with a 17 year old in the uk is not a crime Mm. and the women slipping in and out could you determine roughly what what age we're talking here? Yeah, they were in their twenties. They were in their twenties. There wasn't any that I would say were were younger than that. Um, they were definitely in their twenties, and they were definitely going. Definitely, some of them were fifteen, twenty years uh, younger than than Prince Andrew. It's obviously it must, it's not just my opinion. It's the opinion of other officers that I work with that he obviously had a taste for younger women, and you know that's fine. But there was never an occasion, and I can honestly say that that I ever had suspicions about uh, the age of a female guest entering the palace. And there's a situation in the book where the protection squad think that there's some prostitutes coming in. Yeah, that's the Chelsea Herber girls. Yeah, Basically, what happened on that was, it was again, it was late, it was about 10 o'clock, maybe even later than that, I can't remember. And um, we just get a call, there's a taxi coming with two female guests for Prince Andrew, same protocol, just open the gates and let the taxi straight through into the quad. So we had to go and open the quad the gates of the quad because they're shut at night for security. So open the gates, taxi pulls up. There's two scantily clad females. Um, you know, well, I'm, I emphasise the word scantily clad. They had short skirts, very low cut tops, heavy makeup, and they were drinking cans of coke, giggling and laughing. Um, now, the reason I'm picking up on that is because they're coming to see a member of the royal family as opposed to going to a nightclub, which is a slightly different sort of, uh, you know, uh, place you would go when you're dressed in that sort of attire so it just it just seemed out of place for us and my colleague um he was of the opinion that it was it was late it was a night and we're police officers we have a laugh and a giggle you know and his opinion was they were prostitutes and they looked like prostitutes or they looked like it started off they looked like prostitutes from the chelsea harbour club because apparently there's a, a, a i don't know a high class escort agency running around that area called chelsea harbour girls or something like that anyway so he proceeds to get on the post phone and ring all the other police officers because that's what they used to do on night duty have a laugh and uh, he said oh there's a couple of girls coming they look like prostitutes well by the time it had gone round to the last person they were now prostitutes <laughs> and uh, so everyone wanted to get a look at them um, and so the control room were told as soon as they because we had everything on camera so we could see when they went in his apartment so they were told as soon as they exit the apartment 
radio up and let everyone know so we can come down and because there's only one way they were going to exit on this occasion that's through the side door so just let us know and we'll all come down and have a look so um about an hour literally an hour it was, it was an hour the uh the control radio up and said yeah the uh uh guests are leaving four one's apartment now en route down to the side door so the side door is like another office uh, like i said you'd an empty entrance right and it's got like a glass there's a glass like airlock as it were, that once you go into it, you've got to shut one glass door, come through the next one, then you're into the into the, the sort of the office area. So there was about ten of us stood in there, all, like ten coppers all stood there waiting for these two these two nab nah prostitutes to come through the door. Um anyway, as they come through the door, what the idiot, and I'll say idiot, and I've said it before, what the idiot in the control didn't tell us was that Prince Andrew was coming with them. So as they've come through the glass airlock and everyone's looking gleefully at them to get an eyeful. A hand's grabbed the door and he's come through and stood in the airlock with him. So obviously, the next thing you know, there's about 10 coppers trying to run out of this little door all at the same time, falling out into the car park. You've got policemen crawling on their hands and knees, hiding behind parked cars, hiding in bushes. Um, and he's literally walked him out. Um, I walked him out to there's two officers on the side gate there. He's walked him out onto the road. So he's now outside the palace grounds on his own with these two families. He waited there until a, a taxi came along and held him a taxi. Now, the point about that is, as fun as it was, the point about that was Prince Andrew has never, ever, nor to my mind, any member of the royal family has ever gone outside with a guest and held their own taxi. So what I, on this occasion, did he feel it necessary? Because usually, and I've said it before and it's been publicised, he might he may well get his protection officers to drive these females home, which again we're not a fucking taxi service, pardon my French, but this is part of what would happen. Some protection officers would have to drive these females home, you know, and that's clearly not their duty. Um, and also, other occasions he would have taxis already waiting for the guests. So why on this occasion was there no taxi waiting for him? And I'm not trying to feed in a conspiracy theory. I'm just saying, from my point of view and the rest of the officers' point of views. He just made himself look more suspicious on that occasion because he's now standing out on the road at near enough midnight hailing a taxi. You know? So another objection you said you had with Prince Andrew's interview was he said he was so honourable and brave in the Falklands and he got fired at and because of that he yeah. wasn't sweating at that time. Yeah, well that's rubbish because I've seen him sweating and, I, and again I've documented it and I've, and I've spoke about this that um, he would come out in the garden and play golf, hit his golf balls up the garden um which on one occasion it was uh it was an occasion where i needed to be on the phone and i couldn't because he'd come out the garden entrance and was now uh with his with his protection officer who was carrying his golf bag which i had a particular issue with that because i thought you're not a fucking caddy you're a police officer what are you doing but this is what i'm trying to explain to you he had that sort of you know purpose about him that if he's asking the protection officer to pick his golf bag up he's going to do it because he's, he's you know otherwise he'd be off the protection squad probably um, and so Prince Andrew was playing, it was a really hot day on that day and he was, he was whacking golf balls up the end of the garden. He was sweating profusely, you know, and the reason I noticed that, cause I wanted him to go back inside cause I needed to use the post phone urgently. Cause at the time I was trading, I was <laughs> trade, I was trading on the stock market and that's the problem. I had, I had lots of money on the go, but I remember that day distinctly because I thought you need to go cause I'm, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> so this is the first time. On camera since this whole Epstein case, that someone that close to Prince Andrew mm. has testified that they saw him sweating mm. 
just to expand on that a little bit, because I think people are going to really watch this and, and be interested. Could you describe where you saw him sweat? Right. He was playing. What Basically, what he would do is he would come out and literally knock the golf balls from the sort of embassador, uh, oh, not the embassador's entrance. There's a, there's a, a, a rear, a rear sort of, uh, so from the, from the palace looking at towards the garden, there's a, there's a lake. So he would plot up his, his golf balls and whack them towards the lake. Um, and on this particular occasion, he came out. Whether he was he was having a warm up because he was going to golf somewhere, I don't know. Um, but on this particular occasion, the reason I, like I said I remembered it because I needed to use the phone to to do some trades um, with, on the stock market. And so he was interrupting me doing what I needed to do. It. I know it sounds funny and selfish, whatever you want to call it, but that was in the middle of all what was going on in my life. Um, and so he was he was um, spent about half hour probably 40 minutes hitting golf balls up and he was sweating. I could see him, you know, wiping his forehead. Um, and he was, he was clearly sweating. You could, you know, as he walked past me, you could see the beads of sweat, which again is another issue I brought up when I watched the, the interview. And I thought, what are you talking about? You know, you're, you're you, you do sweat. Was there anything else that he said in that interview that you saw during your work that contradicts what we haven't talked about? Um, I can't, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, we've, we've covered most of it, haven't we? Okay, let's yeah. move on to Ghislaine Maxwell then. Yeah. Because she was visiting him when you was a protection yeah, officer? Yeah, I mean, she, um, the issues, again, which, which was pu- published in the national press was because I, I said this 10 years ago, what happened. Um, if we go back to when I said about the security post during the day, when appointments, you come, you give your name. When on this particular first occasion, when I, when I had calls to meet Ghislaine Maxwell was when, um, the privy purse phoned down and said, we've got a guest coming in for Prince Andrew. Um, but the name is not to be entered into the book. So that was the first one. So I was queried it. So what, what, why is that then? Why is she the only one we're not putting in? But he goes, cause it's Ghislaine Maxwell. What year was that? <sighs> probably about 2001, roughly, two, two, between 2001. It had to be between 2000, 2001, 2002, okay. definitely. And um, so the query was, I queried it. I said, well, uh, what's Gisley Maxwell? He said, well, because the name's not to go in the book. He's, I said, why is that? He said, Gisley Maxwell. So, and then I thought, when we realised it was it was Robert Maxwell, the daughter of Robert Maxwell. And back in the day, that was, you know, he'd robbed the pension fund and he was, you know, not a particular flavour of the month so we just found it strange that a person connected to Rob Maxwell will be invited to Buckingham Palace it's not really a good look for a member of the royal family to um, to be seen associating with a person of, of this you know of this sort of stature so um, said no that's fine anyway um, come the appointment which was 11.30 I can't remember now it was, it was later on in the day um, she turned up in a green range drive being chauffeur driven in the passenger seat and we would just let, let her go straight. The, the man gave her a name. We just let her go straight in. And about half hour, I think after that, myself and my colleague walked through into the, through the garden to go back to the police lodge. We, we were relieved and he was having a picnic with her quite a big lavish picnic, um, by the, uh, summer house, which is underneath opposite the queen's bedroom window. Um, and again, we did laugh to ourselves and think, you know, does the queen know who's sitting in her garden? You know, um, but that that picnic was the first initial sort of uh, introduction to Ghislaine Maxwell. Then we had the same sort of itinerary when she turned up, name not to go in the book. When this was during the day, because the the, the the nighttime ones there was no book, so it was just a call up, and usually we'd have a name. But with him, as I say, we'd get no name. But it was just, it was the same protocol with her, which we found strange initially. Anyway, did you ever speak to Glenn? No, 
she wouldn't she never spoke she always just sat in the passenger seat and um, was was driven straight through what's your interpretation now of their relationship andrew and Ghislaine? i think i think they must have had a sexual relationship at some stage they were very close i mean the you know the picnics you know they were very i wouldn't say intimate i'm not going to say something to see but they were they were close you know they, it was obvious that i think they probably had a sexual relationship at some stage during the period of time they'd known each other um, and she was probably a very good friend of his, and I think she she was an, uh, a conduit to uh, influential people, because as we know now, and I'm not saying anything that other people don't know, he he likes to surround himself with people with money and influence, and um, and I think you know, I mean, if you look at unfortunately, if you look at Sarah Ferguson, I mean, she's all about the money. I mean, she's been caught so many times trying to sell stories about Prince Andrew and and all the rest of it. Um, and his his sort of circle of friends is, seems to be uh, have been cultivated by Ghislaine Maxwell because there's so many pictures out there. In fact, there's more pictures of him partying than there is at, at charity events, which is what I've said on my Twitter feed as well. You know, he says, oh, I wasn't so much of a party anymore. Well, let's go back through the, if you, all you've got to do, uh, your highness, is go on Google and, and Google yourself and you'll find a lot more pictures of you at parties than you are at, you know, charity events. People watching this are going to want to go down and click on your Twitter. So Paul's Twitter is going to be in the description box below this video. Do you just want to state your Twitter handle to yeah, the viewers? It's, it's either Paul Page X Roll Cop or X Roll Cop Paul Page, but it'll come up. You'll see it. So I've just I'm reading um, more than halfway through now the assassination of Robert Maxwell, mm. and what I've put together from my research and interviewing other people is that Ghislaine started to go out with Epstein. Mm. Maxwell caught wind of this, and he introduced Epstein into the Mossad fold, mm-hmm. and. Then you've got, you know, links into trafficking in arms, weapons, mm. kids, money laundering. They're like the four principal mm. uh, ways these guys make money. So you were um, around 2001, 2002, you said, with mm. Ghislaine. This, this, was, this predates that. That's around the time Clinton was on the Lolita Express from those years after mm. he became, became the president. Um. Do you think then that Ghislaine, because Andrew, it seems that she's throwing, he's throwing Ghislaine under the bus and he keeps blaming her. Do you think that Ghislaine has got more responsibility than is being made out? Yeah. Or that she is this super deviant, super villain character? I think she's, um, I think what's interesting is unless you've worked in an environment where you're, you're, you're mixing with it, upper echelons we're going to call them the upper echelons of society i'm not saying they're any better than you or me because they're clearly not a lot of them aren't but i'm talking about the super high net worth people and the government officials and presidents and prime ministers and all these people that you know that they've got a different outlook on life than me and you not we're just normal people um and and the people that probably watch your your podcast we're normal people you get a very blinkered view of what life is like in that world you only get snippets of when something happens and people come out and start talking but that environment is 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 a very a very strange environment in terms of the way the upper class perceive right and wrong so what we know to be right in life and society and, and morally not necessarily what these people obviously think and i've come across that a lot in in um in, in people and i've dealt with them 
um, and the way they perceive their actions to be immune from, you know, uh, prosecution or even like people just saying, well, actually, that's wrong. Why why would you say that? Look, you're, you know, you're just a normal peasant. You know, what would you know? And this is the problem you've got. Your Gisley and Maxwells and all those high net worth individuals have got this preconception that they can treat people the way they want. Um, talk down to uh, Prince Andrew. I've given the examples of the way he acts and the way he treats people and the way he, he uh, has got a contempt for protocol. And that's no different from, from Gisley and Maxwell and those type of people because clearly they're running circles where they can get what they want whenever they want. Um, and this is the point of what's happened with Epstein. Epstein is a, clearly a, a, an individual that enjoys power and enjoys or enjoyed power and enjoyed, uh, you know, manipulating and, and child sex exploitation for his own benefits and sharing that out by the looks of it with others. Um, and, and, but never thought that anything was going to come of it. And I think part of that, that confidence would have come with being a friend of a member of the royal family because he's mixing in high circles. So whether or not, and this is the issue I've got, whether or not Prince Angie was, was brought in to be a friend to Epstein to give him that air of respectability that he may well have needed or immunity that he may feel or felt that he would he would sort of um, have with a member of the royal family. Uh, that's my question. That's my what I'm playing in my head right now, whether or not, because if you've got Prince Andrew along, is it less likely or more likely that you're going to get your collar felt? With the public clamouring for someone to pay the price on yeah. this Epstein case... The only people who have been arrested so far, two guards who simultaneously fell yep. asleep the night that Epstein it went down, the suiciding. And you've got Ghislaine Maxwell introducing Epstein to Andrew throughout the BBC interview. Mm. Andrew saying, you know, my relationship was Ghislaine, Epstein was the plus one. Mm. It was almost as if he's shaping her up to take responsibility. Do you think that Epstein, um, Maxwell will be sacrificed to satisfy the public demand for justice in this case because she was Epstein's right-hand person. I think she's not She's not going to be afforded the same protection as Prince Andrew, most definitely, in terms of the FBI and whatever investigation that's going on. She's, she's not going to be given that that same um, protection that probably Andrew is afforded, as we've already discussed about issues surrounding allegations made. Um, so potentially she could face charges. Um but how those charges are shaped are going to be dependent on what the allegations are against her. We've got trafficking so far. Um, Prince Andrew, the issue with Prince Andrew is he's now, as you say, he's trying to distance himself with Ghislaine Maxwell. Well, he's obviously been advised to do that because potentially he could have been told that she's going to be facing charges, but you're not. But I can't see that Ghislaine Maxwell is going to give any information against Prince Andrew. I just can't see it myself. Um, she should face indictment definitely. She's obviously, you know, guilty of a number of crimes. But how that plays out in a, U- a US court is is your, your guess is as good as mine. So we read all these news stories saying she's here and there and everywhere, all nonsense, of course, red herrings. We also had these news stories saying that you know Prince Philip's so angry with Andrew right now, Prince Charles is so angry, the Queen's going to lock Andrew up in the Tower of London for this. Um, did you have interactions with the Queen, and how do you think? What do you think her real reaction would be to all of this? When it, 
as a protection officer, the only interactions you would have with her as such, unless you're a personal, personal protection officer, but then even then, I don't think she would express her distaste amongst the family member. For for me, I'd met her on, on quite a number of occasions, but that was only just to salute and to, to, when because you don't speak to the Queen, she speaks to you. You're not allowed to say good morning unless she speaks to you. You've just got to stand there like a dummy. So it was just about I've only ever spoken to her about the weather. But I've never I hadn't seen her obviously at that period of time with with Prince Andrew. But she well knows what Prince Andrew was like with the staff. She well knows that he was the most unpopular member of the royal family amongst the staff and police officers who worked at Buckingham Palace because of his rudeness. Um, even, and, I, and I've said this before, even his um, uh, personal value of over 25 years, um, who was is like his butler, was with him, didn't like him. It's if you look through the national press, other members of the royal household have come out and said uh, how Prince Andrew is verbally abusive towards them. Um, and in fact, uh, his his personal valet of 25 years, um, I used to know him quite well, I used to see him at night, so he used to take Prince Andrew's Jack Russell for a walk when it used to wake him up. Prince Andrew would uh, press his raw button and the poor valet would have to come out and get take the dog and take him out into the back garden for a walk round. And um, I used to speak to him on a regular basis and even he didn't like Prince Andrew. In fact, on one occasion, Prince Andrew was going skiing and uh, and the valet said... Um, oh well at least he'll be away for the week hopefully he'll ski off a fucking cliff you know and this is someone who's known him for 25 years so wow. that just gives you a measure of the man uh, the real Prince Andrew I mean if people you know people can choose to listen and believe what I say and they choose not to believe but what I'd say is there's plenty of other people that are now coming out of the woodwork from the royal palaces speaking about how you know unpleasant Prince Andrew is you know did you have any interactions with Fergie uh no, I didn't have, I'm unfortunately, uh, no, or fortunately rather, I didn't have any uh, interactions with her. Um, she uh, she very rarely, well, I mean, I can't remember attending the palace when I was there, to be fair. Um, the only, to be, if I was going to talk about if there was any polite members of the royal family, let's put it that way, don't get me wrong, I mean, the Queen... The Queen's like an old woman at the end of the day. People say, oh, I hate the Queen. That's fine. Everyone's got to their opinion about members of the royal family. But sometimes you've got to take people at, at their face value. Do you know what I mean? And um, she was never rude to me. And that's what I see as a, you know, a plus point. Um, Prince Philip was grumpy. I mean, on one occasion, uh, he, would, he was quite... He, I think that's where Prince Andrew gets his volatility from because Prince Philip likes to swear. Uh, on one occasion, I remember we was in the garden and they used to have the guardsmen at night used to walk up and down this gravel outside the Queen's bedroom um, and then there's grass. But the soldiers used to walk along the gravel. Now, Prince Philip used to leave his window open about six, eight inches to get fresh air because they've got separate apartments. They don't sleep together, the Queen. Not saying that that's anything wrong with that, but they've got their own separate bedrooms. And so he, he used to keep his window open about six inches. And uh, I remember these two young guardsmen, they were walking down and they didn't realise what they were doing. They started kicking the gravel, and um, they were walking past Prince Andrew, Prince Philip's bedroom window, and he yanked the bedroom window. And he said, "Will you fuck off that gravel?" <laughs> <laughs> he told her to fuck right off. And I was in the post at the time, and I just shrivelled down in my chair and tried to hide, just hide in the shadows, and waiting for him to slam. He slammed the window shut. The next thing you know, the regimental sergeant major came marching out with two other soldiers. Got these two poor, poor, poor kids. Marched them back, replaced them with two others, and took them back to the guard, the guard room. God knows what happened to them. <laughs> but that was all because, and after that, we weren't allowed to walk on the gravel. 
Wow. We were banned for walking on the gravel and cast it right Prince Philip up. <laughs> but the the most the, the nicest the nicest were the two the two boys. Um they were uh, I mean I only knew them when they were kids, but they would always wave. I'd work at different palaces, I mean if I'd see them at Kensington or, or St James's Palace, they'd all always wave and stop and say hello to the police officers. None of the others did did that, but obviously they, they got that from their mum. What know? about the girls, Prince Andrew's kids? Did you uh, interact with them? Not really. They were very young back then. So I didn't really, to be fair, I didn't really see because he, that's what confuses me because I was a family man and, and this and that. But he spent a lot of his time on his own at the palace. Not Didn't see the young girls a lot. You know, so Harry, he makes this argument for he was such a family man back in the day. I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really feeling that. I'll be honest with you. Because I very, and my colleagues would say the same, that they very rarely saw the children at Buckingham Palace where he spent the majority of his time, apart from the weekends. So... So today we've focused on the Epstein, Prince Andrew, Ghislaine Maxwell story. I mean, you've got a huge story yourself. And if people want to check it out, they should go on um, Amazon. It's a paperback and a Kindle and read this book. It's not written by you, but it it, it features your story. Um, I'm sure people watching this are going to have loads of questions for you. Put those questions in the comments below this video. People are going to probably be demanding we get you back on because you did end up getting in trouble. Mm. You, you were running a stock market scheme mm. um, as a royal protection officer, mm. and it got out. You got in massive debts, and mm. it ended up collapsing. Mm. And you did prison time yourself. So there's a whole. Yeah. Yeah. You got you got hours and Hard hours time. of more content. So if, any, if people want to read it, or people want. Yeah. If you, if you would like to see Paul come back on the podcast, if you've got questions for him, please put all that down in, in the comments below this. So in summary then, just, just as final question on what we've touched on today, how do you think this whole situation with Maxwell and Prince Andrew plays out in 2020? Well, it, it, I, as I said, and I'll stand by my guns, that Prince Andrew is, is not going to be indicted for anything. I'm, I'm pretty certain that given the, you know, the stuff that I, you know, I've not talked about everything within the palace and what happens there, but given what I know about the Royal household and the way mechanics work and the way the establishment works, because let's not forget, I was part of that establishment at one stage and I was doing their bidding as people would say, you know, I was turning a blind eye. Yes, I was, you know, that's, that's fine and dandy. But, but from what I know, I can honestly say that I cannot see Prince Andrew, uh, for the reasons I've given as well, obviously speaking publicly, if you're looking at being arrested for something, you're hardly going to go on, on telly and start talking about it because obviously that's, that's your story's full of holes. And if you're going to change your story, it's too late. So that's one of the main reasons why I think that he's not. And obviously the second reason is because he's part of the establishment. Gisling Maxwell, on the other hand, the, we keep hearing about there's evidence, but at the moment we've not really seen anything or we're not and in an investigation. You're not really going to see the real evidence because it could damage a, a potential case. So I know there's a lot of people out there screaming for evidence and what's going on, but you need to understand if it's an, if it's an ongoing live investigation and there's as many people as are suspected as has been affected as we suspect, then you're going to have to be patient and see what comes out of it because the police and the FBI and, and all the other agencies are not going to start pumping out information about crimes that they're investigating. That's just not how it works. An investigation this big and complex yeah. takes a lot of time to get it all the data before the indictments come down. It could take a lot longer than 2020. It could go into 2021. You know, so you've got to remember that they're not going to risk indictments on and prosecutions to just to give the public 
throw the public a bone. That's not how it works. Um, but, but as I said, Gisley Maxwell, she's not come out and publicly fought a corner. Prince Andrew has. My, my, my indication on that is she may well be looking at prosecution, so that's why she's been told to keep her mouth shut. Prince Andrew, on the other hand, has decided to come out public, which indicates to me that he's quite quite uh, safe in, his, in the knowledge that he's not going to be prosecuted for anything. Some people watching this video will want to contact you or support you on your platforms. Mm. What is your preferred method of people contacting you? They can just get on, get on Twitter. Go on Twitter, I'm on there. That's the only, to be honest with you, that's the only thing I'm on. So they can go on there and I'll always get back to them. And like I said, I'm going to put um, the Ian Puddick clip also in the description box below this video. If you have enjoyed this video and our other videos, we do appreciate you subscribing to the channel. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. We also appreciate all the people who've donated to the channel on PayPal, Patreon, Just Giving. This enables us to go out with a full camera crew, sound engineer, cameraman, and do these videos at the production level that we're getting them to you here today. Huge thank you to all of the new subscribers. Um, wishing everybody a great 2020 and let's see what is going to develop with this Epstein case. I guess, I guess karate guys, we do, we do us, don't we? Us. us. I can do that Arizona prison oh, yeah, handshake. Say, yeah. Arizona prison handshake, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that as well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Paul. That's really right, appreciate mate, no it. Problem. Cheers. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah.